Good afternoon. It is so good to be in the Lord's house, always. So we're going to pick up our studies in the book of Genesis, and we're going to open to chapter 12 in the book of Genesis. I will be going through verses 4 to 9, but I will read from verse 1 just because I want the thought to continue through. So I'll be reading from 1 through 9, but our focus this afternoon will be from verses 4 to 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for giving us an opportunity to come into your house. We rejoice in your word. We thank you because when you come into the midst of your people, our hearts rest in you. And this afternoon as we gather together as your people, we rejoice because we know that our Lord Jesus Christ in our midst, according to his promise. We thirst for your word, Lord, this morning. We are hungry. As my brother prayed, we come from the filth of the world. We come uh, tired physically, emotionally, mentally. We come, many of us have been battered by many things this week. And yet we thank you because whenever we come, we find rest in you. We praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ who promised us, Come to to me, all ye who labor and are heavy burdened, and you shall find rest. And it is his rest that we seek this morning. In your word, we have rest when we understand your ways, when we understand your will, when the light of your word shines into our life. We feel rest, we feel confidence, we are reassured that we are not alone in the journey of this life. 
And so we praise you. And I pray that you will give me clarity of mind and that you will speak to me and to my brothers and sisters this morning. And that our hearts would be prepared to obey what we hear and live by it. In Jesus' name. So, uh, in our studies through the life of Abraham, uh, I titled the general series, A Journey of Faith and Obedience. But today's uh, subject for this small section that we're going to study is obedience and revival. Um, We started with Abraham leaving Ur. We established that he had received the call to leave while he was still in in Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, As he traveled, headed towards Canaan, uh, he was hindered and stopped for a long period of time in uh, Haran, where his eventually father died. And then from there, when when Terah, his father, died, then he decided to to continue his way into Canaan. Now, the Holy Spirit brings the call what God actually told him, um, not before the passage about Haran, but he puts it here in chapter 12, right in between uh, him being in Haran and leaving. And uh, I think there is a reason for that, because if you notice the, the flow of the passage, uh, when it says, the Lord said to Abraham, and he gave him the promises that we spoke about last time, I spoke to you. And then immediately in, in, in verse 4, it says, So Abram uh, went. And I think there is, uh, the Holy Spirit is trying to show us the, uh, the sense and spirit of obedience that uh, Abraham had in following the call of God. God said to him, So God said, the Lord said to Abram, and so Abram left. And, you know, there is that, that continuation that I think is... And so, I only have one point, really, in this sermon, and that is obedience. I was debating, trying to figure out where to go with this passage, and after Lewis spoke, uh, read uh, Psalm 40, he pretty much covered my sermon. Uh, I know that the Lord wants us to hear about obedience this morning. So, let's pay, you know, attention. Um, So, I'll read a few verses, uh, the first two verses here, verses 4 and 5. It says, So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Obedience. Um, in Hebrews 11.9 it says by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same uh, promise one of the hallmarks of Abraham's life is obedience Obedience. He was not a perfect man, but he was certainly an obedient man. Um, And obedience is a prerequisite for fellowship 
and relationship with God. Uh, in First Samuel, that my brother referred to just a couple of minutes ago, we remember Samuel talked to Saul. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. In Exodus 19.5, when God brought the Israelites out of the land, he told them the same thing. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. In Jeremiah 26.13, the Lord says the same thing. Now therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. Call to obedience. In Matthew 7, 22 and 23, our Lord Jesus, when he was in his ministry on earth, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your names and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, O workers of lawlessness. Now what were they lawless against? They were lawless against the law of God. They were disobedient to the word of God. See, fellowship and communion and proper worship to God is not based on casting demons in his names, apparently. Or even prophesying in his name is what God is saying, what the Lord is saying here. To really be a follower of God, I have to know you. And in order for me to know you, and here knowledge is not I know about you. Knowing here is knowing of I have come into a relationship with you. In order for me to know you, Christ is saying, you have to live by my law. If you are lawless, no matter how much you cast demons in my name and how much you heal people and how much you prophesy, I do not know you. Adam, when he was in the garden, his relationship with God was based on obedience. God put him in the garden and he gave him one commandment. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat, it, you shall surely die. Adam, in return, disobeyed and lost his fellowship with God. In Romans 5.17, the Apostle Paul says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And in verse 8 says his disobedience. Consequently, consequently, because Adam disobeyed, as we all know, we all became, by nature, disobedient to God. Our natural bent, our natural heart that we are born with is geared toward hatred of God's commandments. We say with Peter in Acts 10, By no means, Lord. Remember when he says, get up and eat? And Paul says, by no means, Lord. Or we say with the, with the, with the evildoers that Job 
spoke about in the old days. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. In Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, Paul describes it this way. He says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience. And you were with them. They are disobedient. And you once were dead in your trespasses and disobedient to God. Now in this passage that is before us, God speaks to Abraham about his offspring for the first time in verse 7. And he says that I will give to your offspring this land. The offspring of Abraham, obviously, the immediate application is the Israelites who will come and inherit the land. But Paul and Galatians speak that the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, really the ultimate and most perfect seed of Abraham is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he alone is the one who lived a life of perfect disobedience to God. He was the only one who came and lived an obedient life. In uh, Romans uh, 5.17, For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. It is through his obedience that we have an opportunity to turn from obedience, disobedience into obedience. Psalm 40 that we just heard speaks about our Lord desiring to do the will of God. You have given me an ear, you have given me a heart. You're not, the, you're not satisfied with sacrifices. I will come and do your will, my God. That is my Delight. That is a prophetic verse about our Lord Jesus Christ. In John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. That is the perfect obedient man. That is the offspring of Abraham. When, when Peter cut the ear of the servant, of the high priest, our Lord rebukes him and he says to him, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see how, how zealous he is to do the will of God? Shall I not do, drink the cup that the, the Father has willed for me uh, to drink? And so it is through his obedience that we become obedient. His obedience is counted for us. When his obedience is counted for us, we turn from sons of disobedience, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we become children of obedience, as 1 Peter tells us. Peter speaks to the saints, and he says to them, as children of, as obedient children, or children of obedience, through the, the obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. So obedience is a prerequisite to have a relationship with God. And the question before us this morning is, 
Do we desire to obey God? Do we love the commandments of God? Or do we find ourselves, when we read the word of God, sometimes wanting to twist it and interpret it in a way that satisfies our desires, not what the scripture is actually clearly stating to us? Do we love God's commandments as they are, not as we wish they would be? In Matthew 7, 21, Christ also says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you say, if you say to the Lord, 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 but you do not follow his commandments, you will not enter the kingdom of God. It's not about what we claim. It's about the state of our heart being inclined toward obedience to God and his word. So Abraham, when the Holy Spirit puts this passage before us in verse 4, when it says, so Abraham went, is telling us that Abraham obeyed. Abraham did what God wanted for him to do. And so I want to take a few moments and put before us uh, the fruits of his obedience that I can uh, see in this passage. There's two, two main results, if you may, or two main fruits that when Abraham obeyed the call of God and followed it into the land of Canaan, two things happened to him in this passage. Let's look at verse 5 through 9 again. Um, And I'll take it from the second half of verse 5. When they came to the land of Canaan, verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah, and at, at the time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he... Abraham built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now, before I give you the two main fruits of his obedience, Uh, I just want to make one point, is that his obedience was actually a fruit itself. Uh, His obedience was the fruit of his faith. I take that from Hebrews 11.8. If you want to look at Hebrews 11.8, the author of Hebrews says the following. He says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, Abraham obeyed. So uh, his obedience was a consequence of his faith. Right? Uh, It's rooted in faith. And to obey God, Abraham had to have faith in God. 
there's three things he, he, he needed to believe in uh, to really be able to obey God. In, if you look at the verse before that, in verse 6 in Hebrews 11, uh, the author says the following. He says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So Abraham, to be able to obey God, had to have faith. And to have faith, uh, he had to believe in three things. One, he had to believe in the existence of God. He says here in verse 6, he says, he must, the one who is going to draw near to God must believe that he exists. So he believed that this is the true God of the universe. This is the God who... The God of the moon under whom I was born and taught to worship is not the God of this universe. This God who appeared to me is the true God. So he had to believe in his existence. The second thing, he had to believe in his uh, trustworthiness. That this God that appeared to me, not only is he the true God, but he is trustworthy. And the third, that this God is able to deliver on the promises that he's given me. Because you say, he must believe, him who will draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So Abraham had to believe that God, when he's giving me this promise, is trustworthy, but trustworthy alone is not enough. Sometimes you can be trustworthy, but not able to deliver on what you say. He had to be trustworthy, and he had to be able to deliver on the promises that he's given me. And based on that faith, he was able and willing to obey in following God into Canaan. And the lesson I draw from that is that sometimes then, if we find ourselves disobedient to God, then we probably don't have faith either in God, or in his trustworthiness, or in his ability to deliver on what he promises us to deliver. Because obedience is a natural fruit of our faith in God, based on Hebrews eleven six and 9. So, now we can look at the fruits of of his obedience. What happened to him when he entered the land? The first thing that strikes us is that when Abraham obeyed fully and went into the land, he started having deeper, deeper communion and communication with God. Notice in verse 7, it says, And then the Lord appeared to Abram. Now compare it to verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram. You see the difference? In Ur, he only spoke to him. In Canaan, God appears and speaks to him. And many commentators will pick on this point that this implies 
a deeper, what happened to Abraham in the land of Canaan, in God's appearing to him here in Shechem, is, is a bigger and more meaningful manifestation of God than when he just spoke to him uh, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, another thing that kind of makes this point is notice that for all the time that he was in Haran, and as I said before, many think that it was probably a few years, God never appeared to him and never spoke to him. Because to that point, he was not in full obedience to the original call that God called him. God said, leave your kindred, your household, your land, and go to the land that I will show you. Haran was not the land that he wanted to show him. Canaan was the land he wanted to show him. And God stopped talking to him until Abraham was ready and until Abraham fulfilled completely that initial command that God had commanded him. Once he fulfilled it and he entered the land of Canaan, notice, in, in, in how it goes. Abram passed through the land at the place of Shechem to the Oak of Morah at the time of the, that the Canaanites were in the land. Then God appears to him. Immediately, as soon as he goes into the land, God who spoke to him in Ur of the Chaldeans start to communicate with him uh, again. So, obedience brings us into a deeper communion and communication with God Almighty. We can expect God to reveal himself to us more and more the more we are in obedience, full obedience to him. Now, if it's a, a deeper communication, what did he communicate to him? There's two things that are communicated to, to Abraham. The first thing is uh, I see in verses 6 and 7. Notice how, how those two verses are connected. It says, Abram passed through the land. As soon as he entered, he started passing through the land. Remember, this is a foreign land. This is a strange land. This is a land he has never seen before. It says, Abram passed through the land to a place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. And then lo look how Moses and the Holy Spirit puts it. He points to us. At that time, the Canaanites... We're in the land. And then verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to him. Now imagine this man at 75 years old with his wife, with his nephew, with all that he owns, entering this land that he's never seen before, a strange land. He knows nobody there. His father, who was kind of a, a strong guiding light in his life, is not there anymore. And he looks around, and the Holy Spirit says, the Canaanites were there, filling the land, living in the land, owning the land. And even though it doesn't say it here specifically, but I am sure that a sense of trepidation and fear must have entered the heart of Abraham. I take that from uh, chapter 15. In chapter 15, verse 1, if you look at 15.1, look when God appears to him again. Look how God speaks to him. He says to him, 
After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And what does he say to him? Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Then, Abraham, all this time, some sort of fear must have been going through his heart because he is in a strange land among strangers. God appears to him in a moment of vulnerability and need as he's entering the land. And what does he say to him? What's the first thing that the sense that he gives him? By appearing to him, he is encouraging him. I am with you. I, the God who called you from Ur of the Chaldean, I have not forgotten you. Now that you are in my will, now, you are, now that you are in the land that I called you and you have obeyed me fully, Abraham, rest assured, I am with you. So brothers and sisters, God knows our fears and our worries. It doesn't say that Abraham prayed to God expressing his fear. But God knew what Abraham must have been feeling. And he appears to him to communicate encouragement and reassurance. Our Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Do not be like them, like the Gentiles when you pray, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. God knows what you need. God knows our fears. God knows our anxieties. God knows our the things that sometimes we can't even express to him or to others. We all go through dark circumstances, difficult circumstances, where we find ourselves speechless. But the Holy Spirit that is with us, within us knows what we are going through. And he carries those those sighs that we cannot express in words into the mercy seat of God in the name of Christ. Now, how does he encourage him? Notice how he encourages him. We're still, we'll look at verse 5. What does he say to him? He says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. God is telling Abraham and to us that the earth belongs to the Lord. You're seeing all these Canaanites around you, Abraham. They've been here before you and they're making a claim to this land. Let me tell you, this land is not their land. And this earth is not their earth. The land belongs to the Lord. I created it, I have ownership of it, and I have the right to give it to whomever I want to give it. And I have decided that it is to your offspring that I will give it. By coincidence, and there is nothing, those of us who preach, there is nothing more wonderful than when you find a verse by coincidence that kind of fits your sermon perfectly. I found this, this verse in Second Chronicles that just expresses this thought so beautifully. This is um, Jehoshaphat. The Ammonites have come to attack Judah. And he prays to God and he says to him these words in Second Chronicles 20, 
12. He says to him in his prayer, he says, Behold, he's speaking to God. He says, Behold, they, the Ammonites, reward us by coming to drive us out of, notice what he says. He doesn't say out of our land or out of the land or out of our country. He says, they are coming to reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession. It's so beautiful. This land that we're living in is not ours and it's not theirs, Lord. This is the land that is your possession. And then he continues on and he says, which you have given us to inherit. This is your land. You've given it to us. We're living here and these people are trying to drive us out of it. You see, the land belongs to the Lord. And so, even though we look around and we see Canaanites around us, we see sinners passing laws in our country today against the law of God. Declaring a month of pride in what God describes as an abomination. We shouldn't lose heart. <coughs> because we know who rules the world. God is in absolute control. And these Canaanites who are living today just like they lived in the days of Abraham. And who are lawless in their behavior. And committing abominations against God himself. God is in their control. God will dispossess them one day. And the righteous will inherit the earth. Psalm 37, 29. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Now, the first Adam lost that. God had given Adam the authority over the earth, right? And Adam, what did he do in his ultimate wisdom? He gave it up to the prince of darkness. But the last Adam came and he reclaimed it on the cross. And he um, disarmed the rulers and authorities, it says in Colossians, and put them to open shame by triumphing them over them in him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So, that's the first thing that God communicates to him. Abraham, be encouraged. Fear not. I am your shield. The second thing that happens to him as far as communication with God is deeper understanding of God's will and promises. Uh, in verses 1 to 3, when uh, Moses is speaking about what God promised him, he says nothing about inheriting the land. And explicitly he does not say even a thing about having giving Abraham children. But here in verse 7... The promise is expanded. And what does he say to him? That your offspring, oh, you're going to have an offspring. And your offspring will inherit this land. So the, the, the promise is expanded. As he is in full obedience to God, the promise is expanded. In, in chapter 15, this promise will take full, Abraham will get a full sense of what is going to happen uh, in the future to his offspring and to this land. So God tells him not only 
Am I going to give this land to your offspring, but your offspring will be driven out into Egypt, and they're going to be, be slaves for about 400 years, because the sin of the Canaanites is not full before me, and then I will bring them back again, and they will inherit the land. Remember that? So, as he's obeying God, and he's starting to communicate with God what happens with him, he starts to realize and understand the will and the plan of God more deeply. Taking steps in obedience leads us to understand the will of God for us more deeply. In chapter 18, verse 17, there's an interesting verse where God speaks about Abraham and he says, uh, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? You see, this Abraham who has obeyed me so fully, how can I hide from him my plans? Obedience leads us to understand the plans of God for us more clearly. In Psalms uh, 25, it says, the friendship of the Lord now, the word friendship in English is not as, as, as clear in Arabic, and I, when you look at it in, in study Bibles, it is the secret or the counsels of God. The friendship or the counsel of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. You fear God, you obey God, you take steps of faith with God, God will reveal His ways to you. Um, just one side point before I move from here is remember, we need to remember the audience that this is written for. This is Moses writing to the Israelites as they're getting ready to enter the promised land. In, in Genesis 9, if you remember when we studied about Noah's drunkenness, uh, Moses, by the Holy Spirit, had told the, Jew, uh, the Israelites who the Canaanites are. They are the children of Ham, and by prophecy, Noah had prophesied judgment against them. You remember that, Genesis 9. Here, Moses is telling the Israelites by exploring and explaining what God is saying to Abraham. He's telling them, this land that the Canaanites are in is not theirs. This is a land that God, who brought you out of Egypt through the Red Sea, had promised to you. Do not be afraid, in other words, to go in and take it. It is God's gift to the offspring of Abraham. So the summary of this first, first point about the, the, what happens when you obey God is that first, God gives us encouragement. As we obey Him more, He will encourage us. We will experience uh, His presence with us. And the second is that we will come to understand His will more deeply and more clearly for our lives as we live in obedience step by step, uh, walking with Him. The second uh, result of His obedience is that not only does it give us a deeper communication and communion with God, it gave him a deeper worship of God. What is remarkable about this passage? He builds two altars, right? He first settles in Shechem. Let's look at that first. I'm going to call it an emboldened worship. He arrives at Shechem, and God appears to him. And in response to God's appearing to him, what does Abraham do? It says in verse 7, he built an altar to the God who had appeared to him. Now, Shechem, 
geographically is modern-day Nablus, is still an existing city in the West Bank. Uh, Oak of Mora is an area that is mentioned numerous times in the Old Testament, and he, some commentators think that it was, it was a center of cultic worship uh, of the Canaanites and the people of Shechem at the time. So if that is true, when Abraham is building an altar facing Shechem and the Canaanites and their center of worship, he is emboldened. He's willing to worship God boldly and declaring his own God facing all the gods of this land that he has just entered. That takes courage. In those days, to, to, to declare who your God is in the face of the gods of the land takes courage. Remember when Paul was in Ephesus and, and the Ephesians rioted against him because they were so zealous for their God? And he, this guy, who is this guy bringing this new religion to us? So it takes courage to, to declare who your God is. Now one day, God would ask Abraham to build another altar on Mount Moriah. And in that day, he will not ask him to offer animal sacrifices on that uh, altar. He would ask him to offer his own son whom you love. Take Isaac, your son whom you love, and offer him to me. And Abraham would oblige and obey that commandment. But I, I just, I think Abraham could not have taken that step of faith and obedience had he not started building altars to God here in chapter 12. It is, we learn to walk with God and do great things for God in obedience to the, to the small things first. And the more we show ourselves faithful in the little things of God, we can accomplish the greater things for so that was a great thing that Abraham accomplished, building an altar. But the thing is, that wasn't his first altar. He had been building altars all along in the land of promise. This is also the first altar built in the promised land. We have not seen an altar being built. Now later on, uh, Isaac will build an altar in chapter 26. And after that, Jacob will build an altar in chapter 33. So the patriarchs, as they're walking and living on the promised land, they are building altars to God. After Jacob, no more altars would be built in the promised land for 430 years or so. The next altar that will, for God that would enter the land would be the altar of bronze that Moses had built for the tabernacle. And then it would become more permanent when Solomon would build the altar uh, in the temple. But finally, God will do away with all these altars. And one day, God would build his own altar. His son, Christ Jesus, would come to this earth. And up there on Gethsemane, he would become the altar and the sacrifice that would satisfy the heart of God forever. No more altars in the land of promise. The ultimate and perfect altar has been built. All these altars that were built, whether Abraham's or Isaac's or Jacob's or Moses' or Solomon's, they were nothing but foreshadows of that altar on Gethsemane, when Christ would hang and offer himself as the full and ultimate sacrifice to God.
One more point I want to make about this altar is that as Abraham was learning to have proper worship to God, he did realize quickly that to properly worship God, you have to have an altar and you have to offer a sacrifice. Since the fall, we cannot approach God without an altar and a sacrifice. Because the wrath of God and judgment of God would consume us. We are sinners. We cannot approach the presence of God. Abraham, by building an altar, he realized this fact. And he always approached God in worship by offering a sacrifice on an altar. For us, of course, as believers, that teaches us a lesson in our worship. Our worship that we offer to God, to be a proper worship, the cross has to be between us and God. Christ and Him crucified alone must be the center of our worship or our worship would be rejected. That's the first altar. But then He moves on from Shechem and He builds a second altar in verse 8. Let's read that verse together. From there He moved to the hill country on the east and Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. That's the second altar that he built because he moved. Now what was nice about this altar is that, and I'm going to call it, the first altar I called it an emboldened worship. Here I'm going to call it living in the house of God. Why? Because it says that he pitched his tent and he built a, a, an altar. Basically living with God. Walking with God every step of the way. He wants to live in the house of the Lord. McIntosh in his commentary on, on this verse says the following. It's a beautiful quotation. It says, he says, The altar and the tent... Give us the two great features of Abraham's character. A worshiper of God, a stranger in the world. A worshiper of God, that's the altar. A stranger of the world, that's the tent. And when we think about it, you cannot be one without the other. A worshiper of God, by definition, is a stranger in the world. Right? And not only does he, there's a third thing that happens here, is that not only does he build an altar and he pitches his tent next to it, he said he called upon the name of the Lord. This statement implies that on the one hand, he is declaring who his God is. He called upon the name of the Lord, this is my God. But on the other hand, he's also calling upon him for help. He called upon the name of the Lord for help as he journeys through this strange Land. He is learning step by step to lean on God as a sojourner and pilgrim in that land. And this is, this is here where he starts to call upon the name of the Lord that the friendship of Abraham and God is beginning to solidify and take shape. Abraham is the friend of God, right? It is in these verses that we see the blossoming and the growing of that relationship as God is appearing to him and him responding in building altars to the Lord. Um, 
a side comment just because I, you know, we were studying this Shikim I and Bethel. I just want to, these three geographical places that are mentioned in this passage, it caught my attention. All three places in the future of Israel will become a disaster place for the Israelites. <laughs> uh, Shikim would be a problem place for Jacob. When Jacob came from his um, uncle's Laban's and he settles in the land, he settles by Shikim. And you remember the story? His daughter is taken captive. She is abused. And then uh, his sons, Levi and Simeon, what do they decide to do? They trick the people of Shechem and they kill all the males who are living in the city, making Jacob basically a pariah and an enemy to the people of the land. I, we all know the story of I, as the people entered the land, they conquered Jericho victoriously. They think they can conquer I very simply. They go into I with three, I, I believe it was 3,000 people or so. And what, who, who is among the people of God? Achan, the sinner. And they get defeated in I because of that. And then Bethel, when the kingdoms split, Jeroboam, the evil king who, who starts the kingdom of Israel with the ten tribes up front, he says, you know, I cannot leave Jerusalem and I cannot leave God to be the God of my people. My people will start going there and they're going to miss that worship and they're going to want to unite with, the, with Judah again. What does he do? He makes two calves and chooses two cities to put the calves and makes them the, uh, the center of this new religion that he creates. One of the centers is Bethel in, in, uh, in what is known as Samaria. So just interesting about these places that Abraham is moving around and what happens to them in the future biblically. Um, so the reason Abraham's worship was deep and acceptable was because it was preceded by full obedience to God. Worship without obedience is hypocrisy, right? Uh, Matthew 5.23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, go first, reconcile with your brother. Otherwise, your sacrifice is uh, uh, basically hypocrisy. You are my friends if you obey what I command you. Um, lastly, the Negev. If you look at verse 9, this is the third geographical place as he moves. Uh, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now, the Negev is, is the desert. Uh, in some translations, it says he moved down south. Those of you who know the geography of, the, of, of Israel, that's really a desert area where he moves down. He's a nomad. He's moving around because he's trying to find... Uh, places and pastures for his uh, family and for his uh, animals. Now, what is interesting about this verse? What is interesting about this verse? And I'm, I'm naming this point the fading of the revival. Because when Abraham obeyed and entered the land, there is a revival in his life, right? God is appearing to him. He's building altars. He's calling upon the name of the Lord. God is giving him encouragement. God is communicating his will, expanding his promises. He's beginning to... Real revival is happening in his life and heart. And all of a sudden, he moves to the Negev. Now, what is remarkable about the Negev? Can somebody tell me what, what, what catches your attention in this verse? I know you're not supposed to do that when you're preaching, but that's okay. <laughs> What is remarkable about this verse? No 
No, who said that? There you go, see? He goes to Trinity Christian School, that's why. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? In Shekim, he built an altar. In Bethel and Ai, he built an altar. He moves to the Najib, and there's no altar. Why is there no altar, Abraham? Why is there no altar? We don't know. It doesn't say in the text, but I can speculate. My speculation is, it was the responsibilities that he had to deal with. Notice, since he entered the land, he's moving from one place to the other. He has a family, a wife, and a nephew. He has um, animals to care for and find pastures for. He has servants and uh, people that are dependent on him. And he's finding himself moving from one place to the other, trying to find... Um, you know, to care for his family, basically. He's not doing anything sinful. He's just trying to care of his son. But what's happening? I think what's happening is what our Lord taught us about the seed that fell among the thorns. What happened to the seed that fell among the thorns? As for what was sown among the thorns, Jesus said, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches Choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Again, I'm speculating here, and this is my own thought. I did not see any commentary that commented on this verse. So this is, I'm all alone here, and I'm happy if somebody disagrees. But I truly think that Abraham is beginning to move away in his worship. He's, he's beginning to wobble. He's beginning to forget the God who brought him into the land. Now, isn't it interesting? If you look at verse 10, what does it say? He moved to the Najib. There is no altar. And what does it say in verse 10? Now there was a famine in the land. In the time where he is distracted from worship and his relationship with God, trial hits. And what would that famine do, as we're going to see next time? It takes him into Egypt, where further sin and lying will take place. What's my point? My point is very simple. Guard your communion with God against the busyness of life. We can all get so busy in our grind of life that if we're not careful, we can drift away from our worship to God. I'm going to conclude. Uh, we have my sister-in-law visiting us from England. And uh, I told her, my, I'm not going to be long today. Because she's traveling and she's going to the airport and we have to do things. <laughs> but <laughs> here I am uh, speaking good, uh, what is it now, 15 minutes. But I really want to put this as in conclusion, in application before you. I want to put before you the God of Abraham. What do we learn about the God of Abraham in these in these? few verses that we just read. The first thing is that God reveals himself to his people. He revealed himself to Abraham. The second thing, God speaks to his people. He spoke to Abraham. Now the ultimate expression, revelation, and speaking of God to us today is not through visions like Abraham did. The ultimate revelation of Christ we see in the, on the pages of the Bible. We should not go looking for visions and dreams and things like that outside. 
They may happen. God can do anything he does. But the normal way God communicates and reveals himself to us today is through the word of God, through the Bible. A third thing that we learn about God is he is a God of good promises. He promised Abraham blessing. He promised Abraham he will give him a great name. And he promises him here the land and an offspring that he will give him. Our God is a God of good promises. We, the children of Abraham through faith, we are promised similar things. We are promised a heavenly land. And we are promised a blessing where we will be in the presence of God forever and ever. Now, sinners are promised good promises too. What is the promise to sinners? If they don't repent from their sins, ultimate wrath and judgment will come upon them. Now, is that a good promise? That is a good promise because it shows the justice of God. Who wants to worship a God who is not just? God is just and we delight in his justice. We delight in a God who will take vengeance on his enemies. Number four, God is a God of a long view. The child he was promised, it'll take another 25 years before he is born. The land he was promised, it'll take another 430 years before his offspring inherits it. And the blessing to the nations that he is promised will come 2,000 years later through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is a God of the long view. We have to be patient upon him. It says in 1 Peter 3 that people will start mocking the believers. Where is the promise of his coming? Right? But he says, don't be fooled, brothers. One day in the eye of God is a thousand, a thousand is like a day. God is the God of a long view. And we, the believers, are just like Abraham. We were called out of our world. He was called out of Ur. We were called out of the world. But Abraham still had family and servants and a nephew to care for. And we still have responsibilities on this earth to care for. We are strangers in a strange land like Abraham was a stranger in a strange land. Yet he had responsibilities and we have responsibilities to care for. We live our lives. We should live our lives. The lesson of our talk this morning is as we obey God, God will speak to us better and our worship will be better, and his communication will be better, and we'll understand his will for us better than before. Amen. Let's take a few moments to bow our heads. I'm going to ask Brother David to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to take three minutes of silent prayer where you can reflect on these words.